may be seated. We're turning to Ephesians chapter 1 once again. And in Ephesians, we find something that we just know to be true from our experience everywhere else. And that is that the most gripping of stories are always those stories where natural enemies become friends. When, when natural enemies and opponents end up teaming up to accomplish something together. They come together for the common good to defeat a common enemy. And, and there's a kind of peace that's not known in any other way. So whether it's in the Lord of the Rings, when dwarves and elves come together to battle the evil that's spreading across the land, or if it's the houses in Harry Potter who come together to defeat Lord Voldemort, or if it's on that Super Bowl commercial where the Germans and Americans on Christmas Day stop fighting for a brief moment, and by the end of the 30-second commercial, you're in tears, there's something about enemies coming together as friends that grabs onto us because each of us have enemies that we want to be our friend in a way. But, but the sad reality is that instead of making those stories the stories of our lives, there's a soundtrack that accompanies our lives that's something like the Beatles' famous song, We Can Work It Out. It says, there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. We can work it out. So try to see it my way. That's how we're going to work it out. Well, the Beatles were on to something. They, they weren't on to, well, they, 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 they had a lot wrong, but they were on to that. The, the soundtrack of relationships and lives and nations is we can work it out as long as you start to see things my way. If, if you can look at things from my perspective and you start doing what I want, then we can become friends. Well, in Ephesians, Paul starts to give us a different soundtrack, a different story, and he says, we can work it out, but you've got to see it God's way. You, you've got to start looking at things God's way. And in the text that we'll look at this morning, which is Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, what Paul is going to do is to bring together two groups that have been natural enemies for almost all of human history and say that you can work it out because God has worked things out in Jesus Christ and, and you come together in him. So we're, we're going to look at this text in a moment, but just like any good story, if, if you don't know the full story and you just see dwarves and elves operating together, you might think, no big deal. But it's actually a really big deal. Read, read the rest of the story and you find out they have every reason not to be working together. And, and if we jump into Ephesians and hear Paul saying, hey, Jews and Gentiles, you, you got to come together. If, if we just hear that without any of the background, it's almost like no big deal. It, it doesn't matter. But it actually is a really big deal. And so I want to just briefly walk you through what I think is the most riveting story ever, which is the story of the Bible, where, where God takes natural enemies, his enemies, and then enemies of each other, and he brings them together. And, and we'll end up at a part in the story where where we're hitting in Ephesians, where people know we're brought together, but, but they just aren't doing it. E even those who represent Jesus, so the apostles, there's this guy named Peter who knows that Jews and Gentiles are now brought together, but there are times where, where he 
goes back and reverts back to being enemies instead of being friends. And, and that's a really big deal for the early church. That's hard for us to get because we're so removed from that. So when we think about like ethnic division or separation, we immediately jump to our American setting. And, and we need to get there eventually. But the, the only reason we can get there and say we can come together is because God did something for these groups. And, and what he did for these groups, he's been working toward for all of human history. So I just want to take a few minutes and, and bring you through that story so that we can hear this rightly, okay? So in the very beginning, and, and if you grew up in a church, you, you know this story, but, but maybe you've become tone deaf to it. So, so don't think, um, okay, I'll tune back in as soon as we get to Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 again. No, you need this story because this is, this is your story. If, if you don't know this story, I want you to hear this story and say, this could become my story. And, and God is giving me the opportunity to tell my life story in terms of that story in, instead of the broken story that I, I know. Okay, so in the very beginning, God created the planet. And, and he put a guy and a woman on that planet to take care of it. And this planet was not just like, a mundane sort of thing, God made this planet almost like a temple. So you can read other old, old ancient stories about the, the creation of the world, and it's always like a, a temple is being made for the gods to come and live on that planet. Well, in the Old Testament, God is making the planet as a cosmic temple, a worldwide temple, so that he can live with his creation. And so Adam and Eve are supposed to, in this garden temple, the Garden of Eden, they're supposed to keep out all of the things that would destroy or make this, this garden no longer fitting for God to dwell in it. So they're like priests in this garden temple, and, and they're supposed to keep things out. And um, one of those things is pictured as the serpent, the snake, Satan, who creeps into the garden, and instead of of talking to this couple in a way that would cause them to worship God. He talks to them in a way that, that tempts them to dethrone God, to remove God as creator and king and ruler, and to, to try to take over in God's position. And so the serpent convinces them that they can dethrone God, that they can be the gods, and they're the ones who are going to reside in this temple, and, and they don't need God anymore. And from the very beginning then, us, humans, people, have had a, a way of relating to God where we, we need him as our very source of life, but we resist against him and, and we rebel against him and we try to live our lives as if God has no place in it and there's no, no room for him. We, we push him to the margins. Well, because God is God, we can't win against him. And, and so what happens is when humans rebel against God, he, he sends them out of his presence. So he made them to dwell in his presence, but when they rebel against him, he sends them out of his presence. So if you're reading the biblical story, Adam and Eve start in the garden, and then they get exiled from the garden. And it starts this pattern of when there's rebellion against God, there's brokenness, and we set ourselves up as God's enemies. And once we're outside of the garden, what we start to realize is that even though we teamed up against God in, in the beginning, now we're, we don't have anything to fight against. We're fighting against each other now. 
And so you might remember that story of Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve. And, and what happens there? These brothers go after it and one of them kills the other. And, and this is the start of human division from the very beginning. And, and what we find at the very start of this story is that where there was peace and goodness in like the perfect kingdom, now it's a divided kingdom and there are enemies left and right. And no human in the rest of the story is ever actually in a position where they can trust another human. They're, the rest of the story are tales of deceit and disruption and battle and, and disharmony between people and between God. So much so that even, so that even when God is, is doing things to renew the earth, people are fighting against him. They're murdering one another. And, and so then we get to another phase in the story where God shows his mercy and he talks to this guy named Abraham. Abraham was a moon worshiper. Abraham didn't care about God at all. But God in his mercy and love reached out to Abraham and said to him, Abraham, come follow me, obey me, and I will make a great nation. There there will be princes and kings who come in your line and I'm going to give you a land to dwell in. And, And the idea is that God is restarting the story. So where he gave Adam and Eve a garden where where his presence would dwell with them, now he's giving Abraham a whole country where God will dwell with that people once again. And it's like he's restarting the story, not with two people, but with a whole nation. And, And that nation is Israel. And we talked about this last week when Israel was in captivity in Egypt and God led them out. And what God says to them is, I'm bringing you out so that you can worship me, so that you can go into the land and you will be my people. You will be my possession. So it's, it's almost like God, God is looking at this, this group of people and saying, you're going to collectively be mine. I'll be your God. You will be my people. I'll be your, your king. But guess what? I'm going to make you priest kings. I'm not going to rule over you like Pharaoh did. I'm going to rule over you with love and compassion and grace. But, but you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours. Well, they, they go into the land of Canaan. And, and there are some really bizarre stories in the Old Testament as they're, they're fighting other people who are already there. And it's hard to understand sometimes, but the main idea is this. In, in the ancient world, everybody worshiped gods. So, so right now, we could just walk anywhere in Burnsville and ask someone which god they worship, and they'll probably say, I don't worship God. You know, there is no God or something like that. Well, that's not the case in the ancient world. There were different gods and these gods were worshiped by people. And the thought was that that God had power over this territory. And so then this people would go to war against other people. And if they won, it was a sign that their God had won and was expanding his territory. So when God sends Israel into Canaan, what's, what's being communicated is, I am the God who made this planet, and where you go and have victory, I'm taking possession of the land again. And these false gods are being dethroned. And, and there is always an opportunity for people to, to make me their God again. There were always connection points, but, but the main idea was you go into the land and you establish my kingdom and my rule, and, and I will dwell in the temple in that land. And as you live there, your job is going to be to expand the boundaries of this promised land to cover the whole world. So in, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about 
Abraham who believed that God had given him the world as an inheritance. And so there's this idea that God has been working to fill planet earth with people who worship him and and to have his presence dwell on this earth. But guess what? The same problems were there. And so Israel starts to worship other gods and, and God does not let that happen. He, he declares the same thing he declared to Adam and Eve. If you're going to rebel against me, I'm kicking you out of the land. And so there's this thing that we refer to as the exile, where other nations came in and took Israel captive. They destroyed the temple. They led Israel away, and they were in bondage once again. It's like the story's starting all over again. And actually, if you read the Old Testament, it's just a cycle of the same things happening over and over again because we've got a major problem. But one of the ways that God worked to fix that problem was to establish Israel as broken as they were. And they were supposed to be an outpost that declared God's rulership to the rest of the world. When they failed, when they didn't want God as king, other nations came and became their king. But eventually God led Israel out of exile. They, they rebuilt the temple and Israel was supposed to once again declare God's kingship everywhere. They were to be marked out as a people for God's own possession. And, and there was this temptation by Israel to start to think, we are better than everybody else because God has given us special favor. That's problematic. But, but Israel started to say, God loves us more than everyone else. We're his specially chosen people and eventually we're going to rule everything. And, and we're going to crush the Gentiles, all non-Jews, who have been crushing us for our whole history. Well, this becomes problematic when Jesus comes. Because Jesus starts to declare that there is a kingdom that's going to expand the entire planet. And I welcome Jew and Gentile. I welcome all people into this kingdom. And I'm going to establish this kingdom forever. Well, well, you can imagine why the Jews did not like Jesus' message. They didn't like it for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that Jesus does things like talk to a non-Jewish woman and touch her and heal her. Well, well, Jesus starts to relate to other people as if they have as much of a claim on the reestablishment of God's kingdom as any Israelite does. Well, then Jesus dies at the hands of Jews and Gentiles alike. So in the book of Acts, there's this guy, Peter, who's preaching the message saying, look, Herod, the king of the Jews, and Pilate, the ruler of the Gentiles, and Jewish people and Gentile people, they all crucified Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is coming to establish God's kingdom and make all things right. And so for that reason, everyone is on equal footing in their guilt. But then as, as they start to read the Old Testament, they start to see that God has always had a plan to, to establish Jews and Gentiles together as God's people. And, and this is surprising to them. But, but there are certain evidences along the way where they start to say, we, we didn't detect this when we read the Old Testament, but now we're picking up on this. And, and one of the really visible ways that that happens is that there was this promise in the Old Testament that God would pour his spirit out on his new people. 
And, and as Peter is preaching this message about Jesus, he's preaching to some Gentiles, and guess what happens? God's Spirit is poured out on them. They receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter looked at that and said, we, we can't stop these people from joining this new covenant community. We've got to baptize them. What? We can't stop because they've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. And, and then he went back and started telling all of the Jews, hey, I know that we've been saying Gentiles, pooey on them, keep them away from us. Well, God is doing something in Jesus to bring them into us. And he's giving them the Spirit just like he gave the Spirit to us. In that act, in, in the giving of the Spirit in the most profound of ways at Pentecost, you have the establishment of what we call the church. And, and we start to see that after Gentiles start receiving the Holy Spirit, this is like Acts 11, that's when the term Christian is used for the first time. And that's where the book of Acts shifts from focusing on Peter and his ministry to the Jews to Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And the idea is that because of what Jesus has done, a new group is being formed, an alternative community that's not defined by ethnicity or former promises, but, but they are included totally in Jesus. Well, we're saying amen. That was hard for Jews to wrestle with. That was something that was really troubling. And in fact, they had this whole thing called the Jerusalem Council where they tried to figure out, should we impose Jewish customs and standards on Gentiles? And, and the answer was no. And, and the things that they weren't permitted to do were the things that no Christians were permitted to do anyway. It was like fornication and, and sacrificing things to idols, these sorts of things that's not part of the Christian faith. And, and the point was that for now on, Jews and Gentiles stand at equal footing before God as his one people. This, as I mentioned, that was hard for the Jews to always hold on to. And that's why if you read the letters in the New Testament, there's almost always this big debate about Jews and Gentiles going on. Well, it's because natural enemies, people who've always been divided, are trying to figure out how do we operate now as one people of God? Well, the book of Ephesians is all about that unity. That, that's the main theme, and we'll see this more in chapter 2. But this brings us to the point where we can look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, and make all the comments necessary to prepare the way for the rest of Ephesians. Um, so I'm going to read this text. I put it on the screen because I'm going to go back and point some things out. But let me read Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 for us. In him... We have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, I need to make some comments here that are a little bit more of explanation and, and maybe more teachy, but you need these if you're going to hear this stuff. Okay, so the first comment is this. This text, this paragraph that I just read on your screen is connected to verses three, starting all the way back up in verse three. 
And believe it or not, this, it doesn't show up in our English translations because they help us out and they put it in the way we talk. But this is all one sentence. So from verse 3 down to verse 14, it's like 202 words in Greek and it's all one sentence. Well, that means that you can't understand any part of it aside from the whole. Now, we might look at that and say, wow, that's so abnormal for someone to use a 202-word sentence. We do it all the time, especially like when we're praying or when we're just explaining something with a lot of excitement. We have a lot of run-on in our sentence, and we may only have one main verb, right? So we might be like, did you see the guy who got punched in the parking lot? It was like blank, and we'll just go on with this huge run-on sentence, all connecting back to the one verb of, you know, A hit B. You know, there's just one main idea there, but we add so much description. That's what Paul is doing here when he's talking about the work of God in choosing both Jew and Gentile, even though no one had heard of it before, even though we wouldn't have recognized it on our plain reading of the Old Testament. So that's one piece. So we have to hear this in light of everything that follows. Now, as helpful as it is to break up this one sentence in our English translations, if you're looking at the Christian standard Bible that I am, you'll see in verse 7 and verse 11 and verse 13, these headings that start with, in him we, in him we, and then in him you. And it makes it seem like there are new paragraphs starting each time. And in, in, in that way, it would be like, well, we, we should just have a three-point outline. In him you have redemption, in him you have an inheritance, in him you have the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem is that, that it's just one sentence, and we need to hear it that way. Um, otherwise, we're going to start to break things up that belong together. The second thing relates to translating text, okay? Translating from one language to another, you just lose things in translation, and it's hard to know how to communicate things. And uh, one thing that's really difficult to challenge, really difficult to translate, challenging to translate, is this word that's almost always translated as Christ, Um, So when I read the text there, I said something about those who had already put their hope in Christ. Well, this word Christ is actually a title, and it's the title Messiah, okay? So throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that a Messiah is coming who will establish God's kingdom, all right? Now, different Jews had different ways of understanding the Messiah, and in fact, a good amount of them thought there would be two Messiahs one who would be a priest and one who would be a king. Uh, So there were different messianic hopes or expectations, but the point is that this term refers to the Messiah and it connects what happens in the New Testament to the Old Testament. Now, my, my tool for reading the Bible is if the word Christ shows up and it's connected to Jesus or Lord in some way, we should say Christ and look at it more as this, um, this name. But if it shows up by itself, I think the, the function of that title is in view. So we should be thinking Messiah and connecting whatever's going on there in this isolated Christ to the rest of the Bible, okay? So if I reread that, then it says that the, these people had already put our hope in the Messiah, okay? So, so what this should be, triggering in your mind is that Paul might be referencing Jews who had hope in the Messiah for their entire existence, as opposed to the Gentiles who didn't have hope in the Messiah for the rest, you know, for their their whole time. 
right? So, so keep that in your mind. I'm going to return to that. The third thing that I need to point out is that pronouns are really, really important. And uh, these words that are like we or you or I, these personal pronouns, signal identity, right? And as we read this text, all the way through so far, the pronoun we has showed up in an unqualified way. And I'm going to refer to that as an inclusive we. And by that, I mean the we includes everybody who's reading or hearing this text who identify as Christians. Um, so, so sometimes um, we talk about a royal we, and, and that's where like the Queen of Britain or something like that will say, we are happy you are here. And, and that's an exclusive we. It's, it's saying, I'm happy you're here, but I'm so important that I'm using we, you know, to, to signal my importance. It's the majestic we. So we gets used in a number of ways. Well, throughout Ephesians so far, we just includes everybody. We have been chosen in him. We, we have redemption. Well, when we get to verse 11, he says that in him we have an inheritance, but then he qualifies who the we is. And, and he's trying to say, not we as in everybody, but we who had already put our hope in the Messiah. Well, those people are the Jews. And, and Paul right now is starting to say, I'm going to address the issues of division between Jew and Gentile. Now, now you might be looking at this and saying, you're really reading into this. How, how can you say that that's just the Jews? Well, if you look at chapter 2, so it's like one page over. In chapter 2, verse 11, so that's helpful, 2.11, he says that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So, so now we're getting very clearly you Gentiles distinguished from we Jews. But how does he define the Gentiles? In verse 12, at that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Okay, so I think, I think you can see where Paul is saying right now, hey, look, there's a whole group of you in the church and, and we because we've had the Old Testament scriptures, we've had this Hebrew Bible, these messianic promises, we, we know something that the Jews haven't had. We've known a hope that they've never known. Okay? Is everybody tracking? Okay. I need to add another issue for your consideration. And that is, when we read verse 11, it starts out with this phrase, in him we have also received and inheritance. That is true. It's true. And, and even in this text, as we look one verse above, Paul is saying that, that God is working to bring everything together in Christ. And, and we understand then, and especially if you're a Jew hearing about this inheritance that you have, you're thinking the promises that were given to Abraham and then carried on in Israel. Well, the problem is here that the word is used so infrequently in the New Testament, it's hard to know how to translate it but there's a different translation that's preferred. And if you're using the Christian Standard Bible, there's a footnote under it, uh, letter F, if you have the same one that I do. And it says, or in him, we are also an inheritance. And, and I think that's what's going on here. I think Paul is saying, you, you Jews, Israelites, from the very beginning, God has said, I am making you a people for my own possession." 
Well, now he is saying we are God's inheritance. He owns us. We belong to him. We're his people. Why? Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Now, this connects right back to what we considered a couple weeks ago from Deuteronomy when God says, Israel, I chose you as a people for my possession, not because you're awesome, but because I'm awesome. And and that's why he follows it up here and says that it's so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So where Jews might look at Gentiles and say, you are lesser than we are, Paul is saying, no, that's not why you were chosen early on. It's so that you would be to the praise of his glory. And, And that's what he's going to say to the Gentiles in a moment. So if we're tracking, verses 11 and 12 is talking about Jews who have hoped in the Messiah that they've had hope in the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures and in their national history, and they are an inheritance for God. They are a people to be possessed by God. They aren't to be owned by themselves, and they actually have no right to say who God possesses or who God doesn't possess. That's the point in this section. And then Paul turns his attention then to the Gentiles in verse 12, or sorry, verse 13. He says, in him you also, So you Gentiles also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And what does that sound like? That sounds like Acts. They heard the word of truth, the gospel, they believed, and they received the Holy Spirit, marking them off as part of this new covenant community. Now, there are um, more in-depth things we could talk about about the work of the Holy Spirit in this text. But what Paul is doing here is not trying to articulate a theology of the Holy Spirit, but to identify Gentiles as people who have received the Holy Spirit in the same way that Israel did. So, so, so there is a theology of the Holy Spirit there, and, and we should talk about that sometime. But, the, but what you need to grab onto is that the proof that Jews and Gentiles are now equal and made one in Christ is that they have the Holy Spirit too. Paul will pick this up in Ephesians 2 and and he'll say things like, he'll say things like this. In verse 12, he's talking of chapter 2 to the Gentiles. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the language of Acts when Peter preaches that the kingdom is now for those who are near and for those who are far off. It's for you and your children and those who are far off. And there's this monumental change in redemptive history that makes the church as a new humanity, replacing isolated Israel and excluded Gentiles forevermore. The picture that we get then is that we should never consider a separation of the new humanity that's in Christ. This is a new humanity that will exist forevermore as God's own possession. The mark of that possession is the Holy Spirit. Jew and Gentile received it alike. What do we do with this? We're all probably Gentiles, I'm assuming. I don't know our national and family histories, but the reality is that when we hear a text like this, we, we might think, neat, that's great. 
I'm glad that happened. And, and if we try to apply it at all, we only do in terms of trying to figure out what happens at the end times when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. And then we get sidetracked about debates about what Israel's role and what the Gentiles' role are. And can you separate the new humanity that, that's now been created in Christ? Well, I, I think leaning into that discussion is not the way we ought to respond to this text. Instead, I want to give us four levels at which we should respond to the text, okay? The first level or horizon, you could say, whatever language you want to put it on this, the first category of response is at the redemptive historical level. And that is simply to recognize that Jews and Gentiles are now identified as God's shared inheritance, possession, and people. And, and this is the climax of an amazing storyline the, in the Bible. So tie into that and realize you're where you fit into it. You fit into the ones who are once without hope and without God in this world. I think our temptation is to, especially if you grew up in a Christian home, is to read yourself as an Israelite who has always had hope in the Messiah and anyone who's unlike you you know, people who look different than you or whatever, these are the people who are far off. And maybe if they, if they work up to it in the right way, we can let them in. No, you and I are the ones who are far off and we've been graciously welcomed in. And so as we look at the whole piece of redemptive history, there should be a profound sense of gratitude and praise to God's glorious grace that we are here with hope and with God in this world. Second, I think that there's application on a church level or new humanity level, and that is that you are God's possession. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? You are God's possession in an even more real way than Israel was God's possession. God owns you. And I think we all would be helped to look on our lives and ask, who else am I letting put a claim, a claim on my life? Who else am I granting possession of me? In the way that I live my life, have I sold myself over to the possession of a political party or of a pursuit of wealth or a particular ideology or way of thinking? Have I looked at myself as belonging to someone other than God? I think that sadly the answer is yes. We, we allow just about anything to take possession of us. Whether that is a group, like a political party, or a person where we live in the fear of man and we were captivated by pleasing others or a, an abuse of something God has given like alcohol and we allow that to captivate our lives, whatever it is, I think you and I are a people who resist God possessing us because that's who humans have always been. But in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that seals us and marks us off as God's possession until that possession is finally grabbed until the redemption of that possession when Jesus returns. So where you find yourself being possessed by something else, let go of that and allow God to own you fully and forever. 
on this same level in this idea of being God's possession, this ought to change the way that you look at anybody you come in contact with. I think that, that if you are a normal human, you look at other people as individuals who ought to come under your possession so that you can manipulate them to get what you want. Or, or if they're standing in their way, if, you, if they're standing in your way, you can crush them because they're just an obstacle. God gives us a different way of looking at people. They aren't ours to possess. We don't have ownership over them. Instead, God does. And he, he did from the beginning when he put his mark on every person as an image bearer of God. And he's doing so in a renewed way as he puts the mark of the Holy Spirit on them. And this is not limited just to believers. Every human being is someone who God wants to make his possession. And so we ought to relate to them in that way. This is going to require you and I to stop looking at people according to any other identity or metric or standard. So we don't welcome someone into our friendship because of who they are according to this world's standards or what they have to offer us, but according to who they are is a shared possession of God which leads then to third level of response on an individual relational level. So, so that's true as a church, is a corporate possession of God, but that is true for you as an individual wherever your feet go. So whether you are at work and you're evaluating your coworkers based on a world's value system, or, or whether it's while you're out walking on the street and you pass people at the park or whatever it is, when you look at somebody, if you start to evaluate them according to the world system that prizes things like wealth or popularity or coolness, you are not treasuring them as God treasures them. And, and if you start either drawing close to people or pushing them away because of these external metrics, then I think you are living in rebellion to what God wants for you and for that person. And if we can start to see people in this way, I think we're able to circumvent all of the identity politics and everything else that, that is unavoidable by any other track. So, so the way that you can relate to other people as genuine human beings instead of being performative in terms of some you know, ethnic posture or, or reconciliation posture that's based on, on ideas that don't do anything. You can now look at every person, regardless of their skin color, and say, these are God's people, and, and I'm God's people. And in the same way that Jews and Gentiles could get over this forever divide, whatever divide is there, however big or small, that's transcended by our new identity is God's new humanity, his, in his new race, his new people. Whatever, whatever the metric might be, that's gone. And it can, it can be as big as, as a racial divide or as small as someone who got the job that you wanted. And in, in kids, it, it can be as small as the things you don't like about your siblings. So, so what Jesus did for you, kids, and for all of us, is he made it so that when, when your sibling is annoying you, you don't have the right to throw down on them. You don't have a right to be mean to them. That, that's, every aspect of life is transformed by this because God owns every part of it. 
would be impossible to outline every way that this happens. But I bet if you take a few moments over lunch today with your family to start asking each other, hey, wife, husband, child, brother, sister, friend, how, how have you seen me exercise a possession over you that belongs to God alone? Or, or how have you seen me exclude you? Based, where, where do I make you feel like, like you don't measure up based on a worldly value system? I think those are the kinds of conversations we've got to have if this is going to move beyond doctrine to the drama of our lives. So, so I would encourage that um, as, as you talk with people throughout the week. Finally, and on the fourth level, I just want us to think at, the, at this local church. Resurrection Church in Burnsville. This ought to change the way that we're in Burnsville so that the ministries we do in our community, the relationships that we have in this church are not about increasing our influence or status or anything else, but to spread God's glory like the waters cover the sea, to, to put God's name in every place we can, declaring what's already true, that we are his possession and that this whole earth belongs to him. 